We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a that talks about actual football issues. Beats me. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. I mean, look, we've done what's your favorite player, team, pick a team, draft a team, eliminate a team, knock out a player, who's good. Who's, we, we've gamified every single thing we could think of to make these podcasts interesting. And at the end of the day, I think today we're just going to talk plain old football. Imagine that. Um... I just want to say hello, and I hope everybody's healthy and well and safe and surviving, and that uh, economically you're holding up okay, that that mentally you're holding up okay. Uh, you know, I, my hope is that we are seeing the corner turn, but I think, unfortunately, there may be a lot of turns to this corner before we are through it, and uh, the best thing we can do is just be good to each other, support each other. Uh, I've received a lot of messages of support online that I appreciate as things have been fairly hectic here. But I still class myself certainly as one of the lucky ones uh, in that my family is healthy and well and we are safe and we are together and happy. So I I wish the same for you and uh, support for you. And if this podcast is in any way some support to just get through the hours that need to be filled, uh, that's what we've always looked at the podcast as. Just some sound to fill some hours. And here to fill some hours with his sound, with his mouth, yuck, is Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And additionally, filling your ears with his mouth sounds is Clive. You can find him on Twitter at Clive P A F C. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Hello, indeed. Okay, so uh, let's let's just start with this because I thought this was kind of an interesting conversation we were having off air. And actually, Tim, I, I think it makes for an interesting conversation on air. Spurs are mm. scum. We know they're scum. They've always been scum, and so the scum do what scum do. They they furlough their workers, and they're the first to try to cut corners economically uh, at the first opportunity. Um, but Liverpool. A little different. Um, you know, you never walk alone. We know how seriously they take that, and it is by no means just a marketing ploy. They tried to furlough their workers, and there was outrage, and it looks like they are backtracking. And that's mm-hmm. a good thing. Uh, the important point here, and I'll let you make it, but I will imitate it because you made it eloquently off air, and now I can claim it as my own. The important thing right now is just doing the right thing, not how you get there. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it don't show your work, just get it right. Um, but I think this makes an important sort of larger point about the value of PR to sporting organizations, the need to keep fans on side, and what we can learn about banding together as fans to really try to get the meaningful change we need for our club to to behave the way we want it to. Exactly. Um, the message is very clear. Hold your club to account. Kick, if, if they take the piss, kick up a stink, okay? Complain. 
because it works. We're seeing it works. Liverpool have done it before with ticket prices um, a few seasons ago. Tried to rack up ticket prices. Mass walkout um, in a home game against Sunderland in the 77th minute because they were upping the most expensive ticket price to £77, I believe. The bad PR was... Absolutely, the PR rather was absolutely horrendous for Liverpool. They backtracked. That is a decision that cost them millions of pounds. They wrote off millions of pounds. That is how valuable the PR was to them. And that's exactly the same in this scenario. You know, writing off 80% of your non playing salary bill, that was going to save Liverpool millions of pounds and because of the bad PR they've made a calculation that the PR is worth more to them than the millions of pounds they were going to save by using the furlough scheme and look like you said um, the important thing is doing the right thing and kind of how you get there particularly in a scenario like this is not really important and not really worth getting het up about but you know at the same time I think if you're a bit worldwide, you understand that Manchester City and Manchester United made announcements um and therefore again that is a conscious decision to announce they're not just not furloughing staff which is great but they're announcing that they're not furloughing staff which is a decision that they've taken and it, and you know that's a decision they're entitled to take and i think they're entitled to take a bit of moral high ground etc and you know what if you're gonna do the right thing and you yeah. want to get a little bit of credit for it yeah you know if you said to me hey i'm going Go to donate it. millions to charity and i'm doing it so people will like me fine you know what yeah, i yeah. mean it still gets the millions to charity <laughs> yeah this this happened with uh neymar uh last week neymar uh donated i think three quarters of a million split between unicef and um a charity in brazil um and and you know it was one of those things where uh he did it anonymously and then it came out someone on a tv station said oh he did this anonymously but i'm gonna tell you all that it's happened and look and particularly because it's neymar like you know, a lot, I, I, I read a lot of the comments because I was anticipating what the comments would say. And, and, and I get it. There's lots of, oh, yeah, that was anonymous, wasn't it? And, oh, I wonder, I wonder who told the anchor of that Brazilian team. Yeah, it would have been better off just saying I'm donating the money, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and look, we can we don't know for sure, like it, for sure that like that situation was engineered. But look, the important thing is he gave three quarters of a million pounds to two very, you know, very worthwhile charities to, to kind of help deal with this. That's the important thing here. And, and like you say, if he gets a bit of credit for that, absolutely fine. But, you know, Manchester City and Manchester United made those announcements off the back of Liverpool making their announcement for a reason. And like I said, that's fine. But what what this teaches us, and, and this is a frustration I, I definitely have with Arsenal fans who um very, very apathetic bunch when it comes to protesting about things like ticket prices um, and things like that or moving kickoff times. Just generally, you, could, you just can't get... Uh, you can get uh, other clubs fans like Liverpool um, to do stuff like that. Arsenal fans generally not interested, even though some of the protests that Arsenal fans have done have been hugely impactful um, so, for example, I'm thinking in 2011, when they put the season ticket prices up 6%, um, th this protest was spontaneous because we lost the last home game of the season. But nonetheless, the chant that went up was 6%, you're having a laugh. And Arsenal haven't done that again ever since. They've never raised the prices that much. In fact, I think they've done one price rise since then. Mm. Um, most people paid that. And Arsenal got the money and had they, you know, done another 6% a couple of seasons later, there'd have been a bit of grumbling, but they'd have got the money. But ultimately, Arsenal made the decision, just like Liverpool have made this decision, that the millions of pounds is, is you know, they're making that calculation about the price of good PR. So the lesson for all of us here, and look, we all understand that there are more important things going on at the moment, but once, you know, the world gets back to some kind of normal hold your clubs to account complain piss moan you know whinge on social media about it because it has an impact yeah and i mean look when the club was a little community organization that was sort of part of the neighborhood and, and a, you know part of the fabric of the community and i'm not saying it can't be part of the fabric of a community anymore but but i mean when it was just that you know years and years and years ago then i can understand saying you know that you just behaving that way may not be the right way to engage in that relationship. But this is a global corporate entity now helmed by a 
a, a person who owns sports teams as assets. So, you know, at some point, if you want this organization to operate in your benefit, you have to show a willingness to act out against that organization. You know, and mm -hmm. I hate to take the customer is always right approach here because we don't want to think of ourselves as customers, but if they're going to treat you as a customer, then you have the right to act. You know, you know, I, I deal with customer service from time to time. You know what customers get treated really, really well? The ones that complain the loudest. There's a thing in customer service called escalation. And if you have a customer escalation, that customer gets treated like gold. And it sounds dumb when, you know, when a customer writes to the CEO of Delta that they had a, a bad experience on the plane, they get a voucher. They get a free, a free seat. You know what I mean? So like, I, I hate to sort of reduce this down to a customer relationship, but I do think you're it right, is. Tim, that it, it is one. And, and I do think you're right that unfortunately, too often we are so preoccupied with complaining about each other, yelling at each other judging each other that we don't realize we all share this common passion for this club and want this club to be good to us to the fans and part of that is sometimes letting that club know when they're not you know and and also i'd, I'd just say to wrap up the other frustration i have is you know people talk about the the money that clubs have and it's like where do they get that money from where do you think it comes from and they'll say oh well yeah well tv and it's like yeah where does tv get the money from and commercial deals yeah why do why do commercial partners pay money well like ultimately whose pockets does it all come from it all comes from ours and ultimately if we decide to withdraw that money they can't do anything they don't get anything there's no adidas there's no sky there's no like overseas tv deals if we decide to withdraw that interest the power is with us and it always has been and i think people need to wake up to the fact that the reason other companies and organizations pump money into football club is set clubs because they do it for our attention and our eyeballs and our money yeah and by the way like i get it like there's going to be different attitudes about different protests some people may be like oh well, ticket prices aren't bad you should see what it costs to go to a sporting event in the united states and i hear all these arguments but like why would you begrudge a fan or a fan group, the right to try to do things that would make things better for the match-going fan. Like, how does that hurt you? Like, for me, sitting in my, you know, living room watching on TV, it doesn't hurt me. I would love it, Tim, if your ch tickets were cheaper. There's no downside to that, you know? Mm. So, you know, I think mainly it's just fans are scared of looking like mugs to other clubs' fans. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, which is, it's part of this culture. But, Clive, let, let me bring you in here, and we'll start to sort of shift, and I think where the conversation should go, though, is because this is an interesting point. You know, Tim talks about the millions that Liverpool could have saved furloughing these workers, and now they won't. What is the economic impact of this on clubs and how it's going to change football? And I think this is the thrust of the conversation I want to have, and then sort of transition to, does it change the decisions we make about re-signing an Aubameyang or, or selling a Lacazette? Look, the, t the gate revenues are gone. That's gone. That has a cascading impact on the business model for a lot of clubs, but it has a different impact because Liverpool already banked their Champions League TV money. You know, Manchester City banked their Champions League TV money. We were more reliant already on ticket sales than any of these other big clubs, and now we don't have it. So what are sort of the cascading ramifications on this for football, but in particular for Arsenal vis-a-vis -vis our economic disadvantage to, you know, we, we just talked about Swiss Ramble doing this analysis of Arsenal's economic situation. It, it sort of looks like now it's potentially getting worse. Am I analyzing that correctly? Um, yeah, we we're in a um, this this whole thing is, should make us look at ourselves. And I have to touch on Liverpool thing just quickly before I go into this. Oh, please, of course. I I, I do think um, Liverpool value their connection with their fan base in a way that our club has failed to show that over many years. And they are suspicious of us, and we are suspicious of them, and we are suspicious of each other as fans. And we don't have a single view so what do we represent as fans liverpool have a, a working class fan base and there's an identity around spend how much they have to spend i mean on this case is actually some of the more highly profiled people that actually spoke out liverpool strong people like jamie carrick said this isn't this doesn't feel like us and that obviously probably participated a a relook at themselves they, they really chose their identity with their fans they really chose their identity globally and it was that that was under threat. The money is immaterial in this case. I'll just say one thing, reverse. though. 
but but you make a point, and I think it's an important point to 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 really drill into. You say, you know, they they have a different relationship with their fans. That's a choice. Liverpool are owned according to the exact same business model that Arsenal are owned. They are owned by a person who is from the exact same country and the exact same sort of mindset of owning sports franchises. You know, I hate to say it, but that's what it is. They have global fans who certainly would not fit into that same sort of working class um, categorization that the maybe local fans do more, in part just because of the uh, demographics of Liverpool, the Liverpool area as opposed to um, London. But that is a choice. That is a choice that John Henry at the top of FSG is making to connect with that cultural history and that tradition that are, you know, that that is important. And I think it's a choice that certainly could be made at our club if, if they wanted to. Don't you agree? Yeah, I do. And and to be fair to Liverpool, and that, that, that sort of identity has been there before John Henry. Of course, yeah. You know, it was the same fan base that got rid of Hicks and Gillette. You know, they 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 saw that connection going. They reacted to it, you know, in a in a vicious way, and it ended up changing the ownership, and and that's where they are today. So it's something that's in their identity. It's no surprise, and I'm not being vicious here, but it's no surprise that um, the first club to really put his hand out was Newcastle. If I if I if I give you a quiz, which is the first one to put their hand out for it, Mike Ashley. Mike Ashley, but also and, Daniel Levy. You probably you probably could have guessed Daniel Levy as number two, and they did exactly that, which is why the Liverpool situation was slightly surprising, and also it wasn't surprising that the backtrack. And again, you bring it back to Arsenal, and Tim covered that beautifully. It's something that we have to do. It's something that, to be fair, the major has recognised, and new majors recognise, the connection has gone. And that needs to come back first on the pitch. And when it comes back on the pitch, then I think we can become more unified and we can start to look at the things that are hanging out there, like low-hanging fruit, that we should like to see better. But we're so focused on the pitch at the moment and the development and the improvement we want to see and getting some stability there that actually some of these things have gone to the gone to the background. And that leads us on to where we're going to go next, right? So you think about this, you're absolutely right about ticket prices. Three million pounds a home game. There are a number of home games we are not going to play with three million pounds of gate receipts coming in. So immediately we're going to see less revenue, less money coming in. There's already a debate about the TV money. Are, are we going to have to refund some of that? But then you have a look, for me, if you're looking at a recruitment strategy, which way are we going to go? And there's two factors here that really sort of worry me a little bit, two or three factors. With with the game where it is right now, there's a huge, maybe, opportunity. Where there's turmoil of opportunity. Will the game try to change itself? Will the game try to look at a European Super League? And then it's in the next few years, and this is maybe a prelude to something like that. Will the game look at its subscription model, how it how it streams itself, how it promotes itself, looking at the Sky model versus the Netflix model, for etc. We want to be positioned for that. Then you have to look at the fact that we are not bringing in the revenues we used to bring in. We're not in the Champions League, unlike to be in the Champions League next year. And we've got a situation where a, a Liverpool team is on the crest of its wave, and you've got two or three other teams that were building to get close to them. And we were potentially in that group. Now, how are we going to position ourselves in the transfer market? Are we going to go shortcut again, get rid of a 29-year-old, replace with a 27-year-old? Or are we going to do something which I think we may end up doing, which is actually go quite young and focus on squad value? You know, and actually, and I'm looking at our squad and looking at some of our key people, and I'm I maybe don't include a Bamiyang in this, but if I'm a Bamiyang, the outside market is really unstable. But the inside market at Arsenal is actually quite stable. They've told her, they've told him we want, you know, they've told him they want him. They've probably got a number on, on the table right now. And he knows what that number looks like. Now, I wonder if Arsenal are thinking that number's too big at the moment. Because it, it, it feels small, it feels too big. If Just say it was 300. 300 feels big now. Do you see what I mean? Compared to 300 six weeks ago. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens, you know, where we go, where we go with Aubameyang, how Aubameyang feels to the market, will the market bounce back to what it was. And, I, and I'm not, I'm generally, generally thinking this is a huge, huge fork in the road for the club. Mm. And, and I generally don't know which way they're going to go. And I, I, my preference 
My preference is to go quite young, because I think the next year or so is going to be very choppy. So why not build your squad value, build your potential for when the, the sea is smoother? That's what that's what I would do. Yeah, I, I think the the challenge you're going to have both between among teams and among leagues is that the the leagues that have the biggest TV revenues and the teams that have the biggest TV revenues right now look set to have a com- a competitive advantage, a stronger competitive advantage when playing resumes because the teams that are more reliant on gate revenues will have lost a bigger percentage of their turnover than the other clubs. Now, look, Tim, I have no idea what TV is going to do because if I were Sky, I'd be saying uh, bad news. We only broadcast 75% of the season, so we're only giving you 75% of the TV money. But having said that, that would be evenly applied across all the teams in that agreement. So, you know, if you if you are a Liverpool, if you are a Manchester City, if you, if you have huge Champions League TV revenues that were already a competitive advantage for you against a team like, you know, Arsenal, for example, and then Arsenal's small advantage that they have, which is, you know, pretty big match day revenues, if that goes away, you have a gap that's widening. So what is that widening gap? And even absent that gap, what does this change mean for transfer policy, because you look at a, a decision like selling Aubameyang, you know, the market is going to look very different. Certainly within the Premier League, you have fairly rich clubs that are going to continue to be fairly rich that maybe can pay big fees. But I think you're going to see, outside the very, very big clubs, th- that the fees that are able to be spent are going to shrink. And so, mm. and then that may just happen naturally anyway. There may be a reset of the market here. So let's try to put on our, our genie hat, our crystal ball, whatever, and, and figure out what this means. Because if you sell a Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang for 70 million pounds, that may be the right decision. Going into his late prime years or post-prime years, you know, to, to rebuild the squad. But what if the market resets? What if the best offer you get now is 30 million pounds? And you're going to trade that for a 22-year-old for 18 million pounds? Is that a move that makes sense anymore? Do you have a... a a sort of analysis of how this change could influence spending and, and does it change the strategy in a substantial way? For, for Tim, sorry, if, if that wasn't clear. <laughs> yeah, 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 sorry. Uh, your, your internet went a little bit of that. My, my um, internet, I, I want to be clear about something. Every time I test it, <laughs> all the numbers come back and say, oh, look how fast yeah, it is. Yeah. And then every time we get on the call, you guys are like, can't hear you. Now, to be fair, <laughs> that's I'm the least important person here, but you can't answer a question you don't hear. So I apologize. I, so I support Tim on that. We definitely broke up, but I know it comes through clear on, on your The recording's fine because I'm recording. Yeah, yeah. Look, the good thing is if one of us is going to have a cutout, if it's me, at least my recording software picks it up. This is a little inside baseball just for everybody, but but the problem is it makes for a shit conversation. So I apologize. But did you get the gist of where I was going with that? The yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so the first thing I'll say, um, just just I think the TV revenue question is really really interesting. Um, the, the the season will finish. Um, they will finish this season. FIFA has announced today, Monday, that um, they've taken off. Like there, there's no indefinite um, kind of end. Basically, there is not a deadline for teams to finish seasons. The reason they're doing that is because of the TV money, uh, largely because they don't want to pay it back. And they know how bad that will be for the financial ecosystem, um, which, which, yeah, which makes perfect sense. But also for the sporting integrity of the competition. And that's tied into finance as well, because to not I mean, I, I think when people say, oh, just void it, I don't, I don't I'm not convinced they're really thinking it through. Um, because if you void it, you do stuff like, OK, Norwich were a racing certainty to get relegated. They are no longer relegated. They get another like 100 million that they shouldn't really get. And West Brom, who are on their last year of parachute payments, who looked like they were going to go up, they don't get that money. Like that is too that creates too much of an imbalance. Um, and then you look at stuff like, well, Leicester were probably going to get in the top four, almost certainly. In fact, um, you know, that. And, and now you take them out of it effectively and give their place to Tottenham who are on the downward slide and in real trouble because they've got a big new stadium and potentially no Champions League football. And all of a sudden you void the season. You you say to Leicester, fuck off. You're not in the Champions League anymore. You're probably not going to get back in. You're probably going to lose some players because of this. And all Spurs, you're a failing club, but you go back in and you have your 100 million. Like the, and, and that's at like the top level you know, and, and all of the, the questions about what it does to the lower levels and all of that, like 
people who say void the season aren't thinking it through basically it, it has to finish no matter when if that if it takes a year it has to finish it's as simple as that um but the driver for that will be the tv money but as to as to whether you know the kind of decisions it makes around squad building that that to me is really really interesting because i mean to me to be quite honest i still think 30 odd million sounds like quite a good price for mm. abamyang um which is he is obviously a terrific player um but he's going to be 31 and effectively I mean, maybe we we get onto this in more detail later, but the Abamyang Lacazette thing—it's it, not been shit, but it doesn't—it doesn't really work. Um, it we can make it work because they're both good players, but it does it, There's not really a chemistry there. We have to knock that attack down and start again and build it around, um, you know, Martinelli, Martinelli and Pepe and players like that. Um, so, so with Abamyang, I'm kind of thinking unless we can get like no money for him at all. I think we just have to make that painful decision to sell. Um, the one I'm more interested in is maybe Lacazette because he'll be 29 with two years left on his contract. I think in a pre-COVID world, that's a good sale for Arsenal. That's a kind of, yep, yeah, someone will take him. Someone, you know, he's a good player. He's in his prime. Um, we'll get good money for that and we can use the money, you know, to build to build a new attack because it, you know, this is all coming up, right? Lacazette's 29 with two years left on his deal. Ozil's 31 with one year left. Abamyang's 31 with one year left. Like the rebuild is here, whether we want it or not. And we probably do. It's here. We have to do it. And we have to make the best of what we can of some of these situations. Um, and so, but the, but you're right. The other, the other interesting thing is, um, let's say we get a 30 million offer for a Bamiyang. Well, obviously that's quite a lot less than we would have expected in a pre-COVID world. But at the same time, 30 million maybe gets you more anyway. So maybe, you know, that kind of, I'm not an economics expert, but whether that equalization um, works out. But, but again, maybe we're, you know, in putting out those ballpark figures, we're, we're possibly underestimating what's actually going to happen, which is probably that nobody will buy a Bamiyang because as good as he is, he's 31 and everyone has to become a bit more sane and, you know, transfer fees become a bit more of a kind of, a bit more of a luxury. Um, Tim, so- I, Tim, I will think though, mate, I think your man Neymar may hold the key to this. Yeah, because- possibly. You know, all it takes is for one big domino to go. Yeah. And no one's going to sell Neymar cheaply, right? So he set the price before when he went to PSG with him doubling the world record. And I think he can set the market again if he goes back to Barcelona this summer. I think, you know, that's going to be the key. As soon as that first domino goes, then the rest of the market is set and people will take their lead from there. And whether we, I know we're being all sensible, we're thinking what can happen, and we're, we're going through this lockdown, and a number of our lives are certain going forward, and we think that's going to mirror itself in football clubs. But football clubs are a unique, unique beast, and they have these assets, and these assets are worth what they're worth. And I think the moment, if Neymar goes for 95 million, what you said there is bang on. If he goes for 180, 200, and Abamyang goes for 60. This is yeah, yeah. what I mean. And I well, think I mean, in a, in a single one. buyer market, sure. You know, but I mean, that, that that's not going to... I just don't see that having the impact on... Other clubs are going to face the actual economic reality they have. Like, I don't see this working, Clive, like a market used to, which is one player moves and sets the market. The economic reality for some clubs is going to change. They aren't going to have the money, period. There's only going to be a couple clubs that can do that. Well, there will, there will be situations where there, there may be opportunities. Maybe people think, you know what, I want to sell next year. I've got to sell this year. I've got to go and tap a few agents and say, look, I need to get this guy out now because I've lost my cash reserves. I can't hold him for a year to see his value go up. I need to get his value now. Do you see what I mean? And so there could be opportunities like that. So the market's not going to be the same, but it's like any market, something sets it. Do you see what I mean? And opportunities will be there because there will be a bit of trauma. And for those with money in there, just like in the housing market right now, if you've got cash money in them, you, you wait till after this situation comes right now and there'll be some buy-to-lets coming around real quick if you've got money behind you. It's the same with, with football. 
trauma brings opportunity. If you're cash rich, you could, and you've got the ability, and you've got the TV tilt behind you, you can take opportunity. But I do think at the top end, like anything, there will be a player that will set the market, and then beneath that, we'll see the activity we know we normally see. I hope with a little bit of um, sensible <laughs> foresight. But the Neymar wasn't sensible when it happened, and what PSG did there was really ruin things. And that that fed into Coutinho, that fed into other bad buys, and and it's actually it's impacted the Premier League because Liverpool used that money, and look what they've done to the league since then. They've they've basically lost about two games in a year and a half. So I think in the end, somebody will set the market. See, yeah. I I don't think it will be Neymar because the only reason like he moved heaven and earth to get back to Barcelona and Barcelona moved heaven and earth to try and get that deal done Mm -hmm. and Neymar burned a lot of bridges at PSG and ended up you know really really looking a bit silly because it didn't happen and that's because Barca couldn't make it happen last year because they couldn't sell Dembele they couldn't sell Coutinho and that they're no more likely to be able to do it this year. And I, I read something the other week about them putting Griezmann on the market. Um, again, who like who's going to pay lots of money for Griezmann? I don't know, someone might. Someone. I mean, it always struck me as a very short-sighted transfer because he doesn't fit into their style. But I, I, do, I, I think the second point, that there's opportunity, I think that's that's going to be the kind of new reality. And there are a lot of contracts out there that are now going to run out kind of a, like, let, let's say us with a Bamiyang, right? For example, we don't know when the next transfer window is going to open. Might be Christmas, might be New Year. Um, we might have had like a bit of a plan to say, well, do you know what? In June, July, we'll sell him. We'll get good money. We'll, we'll, we'll build from there. But if the next transfer window doesn't open till December, and, and this will be the case for a lot of players as well. And contracts run out in June, like the timeline's been thrown out. And so it'd be a lot easier for players to run down because they will, they'll only have to sit there for six months and not a year. And a lot of clubs who are perhaps planning to put big money into renewing players won't have the money anymore to renew players. So it, it's, it's kind of vulturistic and horrible to talk about. But the smart clubs are the ones who will pick over the bones and think, right, that club's in trouble and they've got some talent. I'm going to go in and take it. They'll look at, I don't know, a Napoli or someone like that and go, they've got a lot of talent. We're having that now and we're going to get it at a knockdown price. A bit like what happened to like Malaga. Um, yeah. For example, a, f- a few years mm. ago, you know, the bottom came out of them. Angie in Russia, um, you know, Shakhtar started losing a bit of money. So people started Hoover. Shakhtar used to make you absolutely, they used to crucify you for transfer fees, Shakhtar. They were a very, very smartly run club. But then like, <laughs> you know, the, the geopolitical in situa- situation in the Ukraine became difficult. Things became volatile that they weren't getting like 30, 35 million for the likes of Willian and Fernandinho anymore. They were selling for 10 million. Um, and, and that I, I suspect that will be what kind of gets the market going again here. Mm. I think uh, your point on Neymar. I think you may. You know, I think you may be correcting. I just. I think that a Neymar type person, and maybe this year, could be that young Jaden Sancho. I mean, that's the player because of his Englishness and his youth. And I think that could be the one that sets the market this time round. Um, I think it's ridiculous, by the way, that we can lose a young player from these lands for seven million, and two years later we're buying him back for 120 million. I mean, I just, I just don't think that's right. We got to do a lot better to make sure these pathways are there for these young players. Because why are we sending that money away from these lands? It just feels like a complete waste. But I, I tend to think, you know, you look at what Real Madrid have been doing. They've been buying lots of young Brazilian players and really projecting forward. I think Arsenal could do something quite similar. I do think the future of the market is with the youth players. I really do. I think what we used to do, which was making superstars rather than buying them, I think I think we can go back to it. I really do. And I think we are, we were already, I don't know, someone will know the numbers, but from, for players under the age of 23, we're right up there. There's a level of experience gone into our team already. I can see us doing more of that this year. By obviously bringing Sleeper back in, a lot of the players that we've been linked with, I think they're very young, you know, none of them more than 23. I just see us taking that age profile down, building the squad value. 
our squad value is pretty poor. And I, but again, you need to be able to sell people, don't you? And that's the worry I have. Who's going to take these players on in a market that could be depressed at the lower level? Everyone knows who the ones, the golden gems are. And so that that will drive their prices up. So I think the best place for us to go in is with the younger players where there's going to be a, a price, but you're going to get that return investment. And that's what I think um, we're going to do in the near term. You just, yeah, and go ahead. Yeah, no, you guys are doing I, great. I was, you're doing great. I'll get back on the <laughs> internet. I, get, I got a Twitter I can look at. It's cool. Go for it. I, I was just going to say as a bit of an addendum to that about Arsenal building young. When you look at the, the age profile of, you know, Martinelli's 19, uh, Saliba's 19, Saka's 19, you know, there's a lot of, there's a couple of players there who, when the if things go as we hope they do, when they're 21, they are going to be shit hot. Um, we can all see the potential is there, but if Arsenal are smart and they can come out of this um, in in any kind of decent shape, then I'm hoping that what they'll do is say, in 2022, we have potentially got the bones of like some really really top class talent and you know i know it's we're, we're talking about going through project youth again and we've we've done all this before but you know if if they're coached correctly and they're they're kind of nurtured correctly we could be looking at um some players who when they're 21 will have you know 100 appearances or more and we'll be able to say, and, and like Clive says, build the value. And, and let's be honest, if they develop in the way that we think they might, by the time Martinelli is 21 or Saliba's 22 or 23 or whatever, and obviously I've never seen him play, so I'm speculating there, we might not have them anymore, but we might get paid when we lose them. Um, but really, I, I think that Arsenal should be looking at build. Basically, there is no, pretty much no way that next season Arsenal can be a brilliant team who challenges for the league like that. That just can't happen. A lot has to happen for us to get to that stage. So really, I think Arsenal should be looking and saying we got some really good 19-year-olds here. When they're 21, they're going to be shit hot. Let's build around, you know, with that kind of. Not to say we completely write off the next two seasons, but let's just do that gentle, you know, challenge for the top four, challenge for the top four, and then in two years, let's let's see where we are with some of these players. The first thing that happens in an uncertain market is a flight to quality. Assets leave risky classes and they go to secure classes. So when markets get uncertain, investors flee to quality. And I think there has never been such an uncertain time in football. And for me, the flight to quality is to players that you already own, players that you know their performance, you know their training habits, you know what's going on with them, you know what you can get with them, you don't know what prices are going to look like, you don't know what prices are fair, you don't know how players have been taking care of themselves through this period. So the flight to quality is to stick with what you've got. And I think that, you know, keeping your powder dry while a terrible policy that I, I laughed at before... Um, you know, I, I certainly think spending in an uncertain market is a scary thing to do. And I think clubs may be inclined to be less active because of the uncertainty about what the market looks like, what the arrangements are going to be with the TV broadcasters, what the revenues and costs are, you know, because this goes all the way down the line. If Sky says we're not going to pay you and you don't have your gate, your ticket revenue, what are you going to say to your... Um, you know, what's going to happen with someone like Adidas? Is it, you know, what's going to happen with Emirates? What's going to happen with sponsors who say, we didn't get the value from our sponsorship, so we want to reduce what we pay you. And then the clubs are going to go to the players and say, we want to reduce what we pay you. One thing in the United States that makes things a little easier is, in all the professional sports leagues here, the players are unionized, and the agreements are collectively bargained. And so you come up with an arrangement, and the collect, you know the, the union agrees to it, and it's done. You can't do that in football. You have to do it on a one-to-one -one basis with every single individual player. And no player is going to want to be the one who sets the precedent for that. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty here about what revenues are going to look like, about what the agreement... I mean, there's going to be probably a year or more of combination of litigation and um, mediation about what payments should look like. And I think given that, people are going to be reluctant to sell and to spend. I do think that that may lead us to doing something like keeping Aubameyang. He's 25 goals a season. He's not going to suddenly not be good because he had six months off. Maybe that'll even help prolong his career, this little break here. So you stick with someone who, who you can trust. Because let me ask you this. I mean, Clive, you, you know, you've coached young people. 
when you're seven, you know, when you're 25 years old, six months off from your job is a lot, but not terrible. When you're 30 years off from years old, six months off your job is no big deal. When you're 17 years old, six months off is an eternity. These are players who, by and large, play 11 and a half months a year, who now will not only not be playing, but not training, probably not eating right, not being active, not doing the things they're used to doing. Um, you know, some players may be engaging in more enjoyable activities. I'm going to leave it there, but if you're following the news, you know some players have been taking this opportunity to, to experience themselves romantically, if you want to put it that way. But uh, look, Clive, what does this do for young players in terms of if you have a 17-year-old white-hot prospect who now is going to go potentially six months or more without playing and, and maybe even not training properly, does that impair that asset? Does that give you some doubt about you know them being able to hit the ground running and pick up right where they left off? No, I actually think it's the other way around. I think uh, it affects older players more. Um, Obama Yang, by the way, I would I would keep him still, but I would definitely have a plan for him. Um, I, James wrote a great article about Bam Yang with his data versus the left versus the centre forward versus the right, and how his opportunities are still there from the left to score goals. Um, but from thirty to thirty three. I would have him doing less running backwards and more running forward. So if you're going to keep him, let's have a plan for him and make sure the left-hand side is covered with somebody who can with a great goal output. But actually, when you have a break, like any preseason, you see young players that when they come back, they're the ones that are at the front in the running. They're the ones that are the sharpest immediately. They're the ones that lose the least. It's the older players that need to get back to speed get back to their energy, slowly, slowly go into it. And then they tend to arrive slightly later. When they arrive, they hold it slightly longer. So I think there will be an issue. There will be an issue, you know, but I think the bigger issue be for the goalkeepers, actually, because they need the group. They need specific specialist, specialist training. And I think they will suffer. They need to match practice for distances and things like that and crosses and made bodies around them. Individual footballers can keep a level of aerobic fitness. They can't do much with the ball. But that comes back really, really quickly. I, I don't see it being an issue for development per se if he doesn't go on too much longer. Because what you're really doing, you're just pushing the, pre, you're almost pushing the preseason back. You know, just say for example, has been mooted where football is, players are trained again in in mid to late June, and are playing in say July, August. That's really from what, what March. So you're really talking three months. So maybe you're talking four weeks extra that you normally would have. So that's not the end of the world for a younger player, but for an older player, that could really take a bit more time to come back to things. So we're talking about so many unknowns here, and and I will caveat all of this. We're trying to talk about football tonight, and obviously there's lots and lots of things happening out there right now. It doesn't mean that we're not aware of those things. It just means that actually we're trying to project forward based on potential things coming back and some form of exit plan out of this um, scenario, pandemic scenario. But, you know, f for these young players, I don't see it as an issue, Elliot. For the older ones, I think it could be an issue. But for me, the biggest issue is, can we sell some of those older ones? Because... We've got all got our ideas about us progressing next season with the manager that we all like. But that's really up in the air right now because we're just not sure how we're going to rebuild and how and, and by what pace we're going to rebuild. But our contract situations are telling us we have to rebuild. We can't sit on our hands. Otherwise, we are really losing more millions than we actually need to. I think there's just going to be paralysis, Clive. I mean, my, my feeling is that when things are uncertain... People become risk averse, and so I, I, you know, the 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 good clubs, the smart clubs, the the brave clubs, maybe will see this as an opportunity to go do business. But I, I could see a tightening of the market. Uh, you know, I just think no one's going to really know what the values are, what the revenues are, what the profits are, what the costs are, and I, I can just see that leading to paralysis. I mean, Tim, do I have this backwards? I mean, two things. One, do do you think that? that the uncertainty could lead to this kind of sort of freezing of the markets? And also, do you think I have it maybe backwards about young players suffering through this? I mean, I just, I look at some of the young players we had who got injured when they were young, and you see how hard it is for them to come back and pick up where they left off. I think this lost time on the training ground, lost time certainly, you know, playing competitively has a disproportionate impact on those players. Possibly, but at the same time, a lot of young players kind of come in and out of 
teams anyway. Um, and a lot of them will be squad players. You know, like someone like Reese Nelson, he's not playing every week. Like most of those young players aren't. Um, it's really only Saka, and that's only because two of our left backs are injured. Even Martinelli um, is kind of in and out of the team. So <clears throat> I, I tend to think that maybe they'll lose a bit less. Um, I think for them, it's it where I think you've probably got a point. It's not really the physical side; it's it's the the contact side, the coaching side. Um, and so you know, like I've, I've I've spoken to a couple of players from the women's team over the last couple of weeks, and and you know they're all like. They're all doing like they're exercising and stuff. And they've all just said it's a bit like preseason, but not preseason training. The bit before preseason training, because obviously they're all professionals now. Yeah, like July, they go, basically. Uh, like they don't go out and eat fish and chips and drink 10 pints every night. They still do like they just do. They lighten the load exercise wise. Right. And they said that's what it's like at the moment. Um, but but the, the the kind of issue is is not so much their fitness. It's easy for them, well, it, fairly easy for them to keep their fitness like at home. But it's the it's and and this is an issue for all players. It's the kind of like if you're a fullback, for example, the one-on-one stuff. Um, you know, you can't do that at home. You can, you can't do football training at home. You can do strength and conditioning. You can't do football training. Um, and and that's maybe where the young players lose out a little bit. Just just quite um, just quite frankly, they lose contact time, coaching contact time during their most developmental phase, the phase when they take the most on board and they learn the most. Um, so th- there's kind of that side to it, um, which, which probably I think just about puts them on, on on an even keel because as Clive says they'll have a physical advantage over some of their older teammates but they lose the slight developmental side so I think that that might all just about even itself out um, in the end so I, I, and I'd be I'd be really interested to know actually what what they're saying to the younger players because like the club are in contact with them every day and they're giving them training programs and stuff like that but Arteta said something um the other week in his interview he said something like I'm giving them homework um so I'd be really interested to see what they're doing in terms of video analysis you know because I'm I'm sure like one of the massive surprises uh, for me about you know Spurs furloughing staff um, and things like that was they furloughed the scouting staff and the video analysis staff, which I find incredible because to me, this is a period where you get massive value out of those guys because um, they can work from home and they've got all the kit. And this is the point where I would be saying to those guys, all right, there's a bit of downtime here. First off, um, you've now got more time to prepare like clips of players and things like that to play back to them. You've also got a little bit of time to maybe look at the market. Um, and maybe look at some of those, you know, those VHS videos you've got piled up in your office that you haven't had a chance to watch. Now you've got a chance to watch them. Um, and that that's where I'd be looking for an edge. Now I'd be looking at the data analysis team. And it, it kind of sounds like Mikel Arteta, he's hinted at that quite broadly. And you say, OK, look, I can't coach you one to one at the moment, but you've got an iPad and I've got a shitload of clips here that I'm going to show you. And every Friday afternoon, there's going to be an exam and you've got to pass it. You know, look, I'm hyperbolizing, but, you know, there, there are still opportunities. And particularly with the younger players who I think would probably be more receptive um, to that type of learning anyway, um, because they've probably been doing it through that, you know, like iPads and things like that are not recent innovations. They all probably like Reese Nelson and Bukayo Saka probably had iPads when they were 12, 13, you know. So doing that kind of distance coaching, um, that 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 is what I would be really, really, really keen to see what the club are doing with that. Mm. Football, football doesn't football doesn't often get a chance to breathe. Right, so in a in a in a club on a week to week basis, it's a hundred miles an hour. You don't get a chance to educate. You don't get a chance to breathe. You don't get a chance to get to know people as much, as much as you'd like psychologically. So, if Arteta's smart, he'll be using this time. I think he said something, Tim. It's a great point you raised there, but he said something like, "We may get a few coaches out of this," and I think that's because he's going to basically be developing young coaches. I think it's a great chance to educate yourself about the game, educate yourself about your position. So when you do come back, 
you are you've got maybe a different perspective on the game. I think so. You often find when players are injured and they're watching from the sideline, they see the game differently. It's when they come back, they're ready to apply what they've learned. And I just think out of a dark moment, there could be some light here, and we get a chance for the manager, who's quite new, to really get into certain individuals, lay out a pathway for them, really make sure they understand their careers, what their careers path's going to be, really get to know the people around them, and really then sort of dictate a strategy for us. And I think. We have got an opportunity here with this new backroom staff to push to a new direction. My view is we're going to go young, but we may not. There may be the market, as you said earlier, could be in such a state, it may drive us another way. So it could be about just opportunity. But I do think from a from an individual get-to-know-you perspective, there's a window that's never normally there. When the season then people go away, they come back together, they get in focus to get their strength up and their speed up and their physical fitness and their patterns together. But you don't get this amount of time to really go one-to-one sessions with individual people and really educate them and get to know them. And it, it could be so interesting. I say that with this manager because I think he's going to take advantage of it. I wouldn't have said that with the previous manager. I just wonder what benefits we'll see in the near, the near to medium term. Quick question for you, Clive. Not a long answer, just sort of curious. Could the could the real impact of this time off be seen at like the U14 or U12 level? Like six years from now, could we notice that there's not the same crop of young talent we would expect because kids who were just starting to get it, where it was just starting to click, where that next day if they'd come back and had that training, been on the pitch, they would have, you know they would have really just taken that leap forward. We hear all these stories from time to time about a kid who was in the academy and he wasn't impressing and one day he came in and it clicked for him and suddenly his career took off. I mean, could we see this, you know, six month period? I mean, cause let's, let's make no mistake. Like to a 12 year old, six months is what, you know, one twenty fourth of their life. Like it's, you know, it's a lot of, it's a big chunk of time. Like, could we see a, a, a sort of hollowing out of of young talent as a result of this layout. No, there's never a shortage of talent. There just isn't, mate. Brandon you don't, you don't Bush think the regression could be something that that a crop of, of players at a certain age just it just becomes it not too much to overcome, but that they never reach the level they would have because because of this. You, you, you could find some people that don't take to this gap very well. Some people are thinking, you know what? I, I I'm not missing it. I don't need that grind of an academy because it's a huge pressure in an academy, a huge pressure on parents. Yeah. And sometimes once you come out of that bubble, you think, actually, I don't want this anymore. So you could get, it could be psychologically you could change, but not many people are going to turn away the chance of a, of a, of a life at Arsenal and a life for your family. And, your, and that's going to be, you know, financially rewarding. If you got that cherry in front, of you, you're going to try all you all you can. But it's not for everyone, you know. There are people that leave academies because they just don't want it, you know. And um, and so you might find that happen, but you'll also find out for yourself who really does want it. And to, to quote Stephen Gerrard, to be a footballer, you have to be obsessed. And a lot of these youngsters are absolutely obsessed about the game, every aspect of the game. They're always thinking about it, training. There's so much information in front of them now that wasn't. In, wasn't around when I was young, and they can they can flood themselves with different training programs, different techniques. I mean, I do it all the time myself, looking at players, looking at how they play, looking at coaching videos, looking at strategies to, on, for coaching. It's all there. It's all there, and all you got to do is stay in your jeans with with a thirty inch waist. That's all you got to do, you know, as a young man, and that's what these guys are focused on. So, it's it's an obsession. It's an obsession for us. It's an obsession for them. And I don't see it as, a, as an issue, mate. A lot of young men struggling I, to stay in their jeans as as it, as it is right now. Yeah, go ahead, Tim. I I, th- I think there are also two comments, you know, thinking about the young players Arsenal have that should hopefully, in the context of this discussion, give us some hope. So when Arteta was talking about Bakayo Saka a couple of months ago, he said something like, "Saka's always asking questions. He's always, you know, he's always in the coach's ears. He's always in like Steve Round's ear. You know, how how can I improve? What can I do?" Um, and, you know, he's saying like that's the sign of like a really like what he really, really wants to see. Um, and by contrast, it kind of sounds like that's what Ainsley Maitland-Niles is not doing. Um, but also this week, I think Kieran Tierney did a Q&A on Reddit 
and he was asked the question about who is um, who's like like who caught his eye in training, and uh, and he said Martinelli, um, and he said you know he just he trains like an animal. And what but what was really interesting was at the end of the the kind of answer he said that's when I realised what it takes to be at Arsenal, and 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 that I just I just found that real like. That, that made me feel really positive because it's like, wow, this 18-year-old who, who came from the Brazilian fourth division, doesn't speak English, very, very shy kind of young man. He's the one that Kieran Tierney felt had set the bar for, and, and I really liked a lot of what Tierney said about, you know, it really sounds like Tierney gets, you know, maybe it's just because he's British, I don't know, but like he really gets like the importance of Arsenal and being at Arsenal. And he gave that really nice answer about, look, I didn't, I didn't come to London to move to London. I came to London to play for Arsenal. And it, it really sounds like he kind of, he gets that. But it, I, I found it really made me really happy and enthusiastic that for him, it was the 18 year old kid who came from the Brazilian fourth division and can't speak to him is the one that made him think, wow, this is what it takes to be at Arsenal when Martinelli hasn't been at Arsenal um, any longer than Tierney. And, and if we're talking about players who, you know, if I was Arteta, I'd be saying, you know, particularly with these young players, who's asking me the questions, who's on WhatsApp every day saying to me, give me a video, give me something. What, what do you want me to do today, boss? Who's the one, like, who are the ones, who are the ones who are pissing me off, basically? Who are the ones who won't leave me alone and let me sit down for five minutes? If I, and, and I'm sure Arteta is thinking this way. I, I bet he's kind of, I bet he's not going to them. I reckon he'll be using this period to kind of say, who's coming to me? Who's messaging Steve Round every day? Who's messaging Freddie Jungberg every day? Who's like, who's hungry for information? And who, you know, it's a bit like when you work, right? And you have, I don't know, if you manage an administrator or something, the one that impresses you is the one that says, uh, I finished the task you gave me. What's the next one? Rather than just sitting there kind of looking at their phone and, and who goes idle, um, and, and I think that will be really interesting education for Arteta. I think he'll find out a lot about um, some of these young players. Mm. And I think, look, a lot of this conversation also hinges to some extent on when any of this comes back, because I, I think it is presumptuous to just assume that there will be a season next season. You know, I mean, if the coronavirus is still a major concern, you know, maybe society has started to come back to something approaching normalcy, but but it's still out there, and there's not a um, there's not a vaccine. And you know, if they're saying, "Well, we'll do it, but we'll do it in empty stadium," well, then what happens the first time there's a game and one of the players who's supposed to play has it, and then you know the 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 whole team now has to be quarantined again stuff. So I, there are a lot of questions about when this can come back, and I, obviously those questions are the least important in our society right now. But vis a vis a football podcast, I think. It's sort of worth wondering. I do think if there was a season, let's just say, that started on time next season, and I, I think that's fanciful, but if there was, I would certainly expect the teams that have the highest percentage of in-prime senior experienced players in their starting 11 to get off to the hottest start. That I think those players would hit the ground running the most easily. And the ones that had sort of the, the young, precocious talent, those players would maybe struggle to come back into form quickly and kind of cope with the, the everyday experience of playing top-level football. And so... You know, I, I think that could influence clubs' decisions. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, if, if a club that has the willingness to take some risk can exploit an opportunity. There's going to be a lot of things that have to happen, too. Players may have to agree to wage reductions. They may have to agree to change the expiry dates of their contracts if seasons get shifted. If if they decide to start, you know, playing seasons later and running longer, then contract expiry dates are going to have to change. All of these things are going to impact what clubs decide to do with their players. I mean, what if Aubameyang's contract expiry gets moved back to January, you know, the, the next January. So does that change your decision on what to do with him now? Do transfer windows have to move? I think part of the problem you're going to have is people who I don't hold in super high regard, the people that run the Premier League, for example, and world football generally, have to make a lot of very complicated decisions related to contracts, advertising, you know, sponsorship, scheduling. There's so much that has to be moved, and all of these systems interact with each other, and so good luck to them. We'll see how they do. That's uh, that's an hour, and I think that's plenty because you got a lot to get on with with your life, and, and we certainly want you to be well. I will say, since this is a football pod and he's part of the football community, Pep Guardiola's mother passed away, uh, sadly, in, in her 80s um, due to the coronavirus or certainly complications thereof. So... We send our condolences to him and his family and wish him well. And uh, 
obviously he is not the only person struggling with that. So we send that to everybody's family uh, who is dealing with this right now and, and wish you all well. And I know that many people listening to this may be going through something related to that. And certainly our thoughts are with you as well. So um, for my part, that's really all I have to say about that. Tim's on Twitter. Stoberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. All trying to deal with a hectic and constantly changing schedule. And as a result, Paul not able to be on today, but will be in the future, as will Scott. Um, I want to say a special thanks to patrons who are making a very meaningful impact in in our life uh, at a time when things are difficult. My, my wife's company just laid off 88, 87% of their entire company. Thousands of people across America laid off. She was fortunate to keep her job at, at a reduction, but to keep it nonetheless. And so, as you know, in America, healthcare is everything and, and we keep her healthcare. So that's encouraging. But um, yeah, so special thanks to patrons as well right now. And we'll have more for that as well. Either way, I know it's a difficult time. And certainly the last thing I want to do is, is say to anybody they should be doing that at this time. But I, I wanted to say a special thanks. And in any event, as usual, uh, mouth is moving, words coming out, not meaning much. So I will tie it up there. And uh, more pods coming this week. And, and we're going to try to set up a FIFA tournament that I will be live commenting. I think I've got that sorted out. So I'll have information on that as it comes out. In any event, hang in there, everybody. We love you. And we'll talk to you after Arsenal 20, COVID-19. 